Hi, I'm Jeff Dewing, host of Doing the Opposite Business Disruptors. In just a few weeks, a brand new season of the podcast is coming your way with some incredible guests and new ways for you to interact too. In the meantime, I wanted to share some of my favorite interviews from past seasons. I absolutely loved talking to Jeroen van der Waal, whose mission is to restore the oceans back to their former natural glory. Now, to do that, he's had to recognize that 50% of coral reefs have absolutely been destroyed over the years, and the rest will be destroyed by 2050 unless action is taken. And Jerome has not been fearful in deciding how we can all work together and collaborate to solve these problems. And using engineered reefs, he's going to bring coral reef back to life and help nature on its journey. But to do that, we all have to understand the importance of the oceans to our ecological life. People don't realize that the oceans produce in excess of 70% of our oxygen. It's not the Amazon rainforest. We know more about space than we do about the oceans. And Jeroen is absolutely determined to help the world understand better the importance of oceans and how we can all contribute, which in turn will also save the planet. Incredible story. Hello and welcome to Doing the Opposite Business Disruptors, my new podcast where I'll be speaking to entrepreneurs across the globe on understanding what they have done to change the game or do the opposite. Today, I'm joined by a drone who has got an incredible story, which I can't wait for him to share. So with that in mind, hello, Jerome. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Take us through the journey of leading you up to your passion of the last few years, which culminates in in something that you did that was um, game changing, or was going to change the world to to an extent, um, and and sort of how you arrived on that journey and, and how you got there, and then of course the actual story itself. Yeah. So um, as everybody can hear, I was born in uh, Holland in the sixties, and um, I uh, grew up in a very uh, quiet uh, Robin Hood type of place in the east of Holland. Uh, far away from the oceans and the sea. My mother was a super-duper old-class teacher at a secondary school in the east of Holland. And my parents um, didn't necessarily have a lot of money. My mother uh, gave birth to me when she was 18, so it was not really planned. Um, and my parents both um, worked uh, on vocational jobs um, when I was born and my sister was born. Uh, they started to go to university um, at night, having two little kids, and ultimately ended up both getting their university degrees. Uh, my mother became a teacher, and um, she inspired me, um, having a little cash flow and money, uh, to read as many books as possible from the public library. Um, so every Wednesday afternoon when the schools were off, I would pick up seven books and read them within a week, and then return them the next week. So I would say from when I was six till 18, I read thousands of books. And most of them were about geography and the oceans and the environment, combined with watching uh, public television, where they had uh, Jacques Cousteau, the famous French ocean explorer, um, on television with his crew on the Calypso boat. So 
ever since I can remember, I got obsessed with the oceans. Uh, having never seen them, <laughs> I read about it um, and I watched documentaries on television in black and white in the 70s, right? So that is really what, what, what inspired me um, at an early age. Um, when I was a child, reading a lot, including newspapers and watching uh, the 8 o'clock news with my parents, um, I had three massive fears. One was about Israel and Palestine uh, killing each other. Uh, a lot changed in the last 50 years, not really. Um, then um, we had um, the East and the West in the nuclear arms race. Uh, I read many books about World War II, about Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, and I had a technical interest, and I didn't understand how two superpowers could think they could protect themselves from having nuclear weapons, because if one party decides one day to push the button, uh, the other party will do it within a few split seconds, and both nations, East and West, will be totally doomed. So as a kid, I tried to understand adults. I thought adults were smart. Later, I will explain how I think about that today. And then um, the third one was um, every day there were black and white advertisements in the Dutch newspapers. Uh, Greenpeace was headquartered in Amsterdam, the environmental organization that was born in the 70s. And they were putting massive pictures um, in the newspapers about Canadians clubbing seal puppies in Canada for fur coats with baseball bats. And they didn't use guns because they didn't want to perforate the uh, fur with bullet holes, so they clubbed them to death, right, smashing in their skulls. So when I was 10, 11 years old, um, I couldn't uh, see those advertisements any longer. Uh, in those days, we didn't have computers and internet, so I made a few hundred uh, A4 pages with a grid on it, with a pencil, and I collected 1,500 signatures in the little village where I lived, uh, ringing doorbells of people to sign against the clubbing of seal puppies in Canada. I took some uh, money from my savings account and bought a post stamp and I sent this whole package of signatures to Amsterdam to the global headquarters of Greenpeace when I was 11. And I thought 1,500 signatures should be enough uh, for the Canadians to stop clubbing. <laughs> well, what happened is that I didn't hear anything for six, seven, eight, nine months. And then I got a one paragraph letter back from Greenpeace thanking me for the signatures and telling me that they would do their utmost to stop the clubbing. Well, I can tell you that today in 2022, the Canadians are still clubbing seal puppies in Canada. The only thing that they changed is that they now have a hook, so they slice their necks open so they die faster. But anyways, those are things that happened in my youth growing up around the oceans, about you know geopolitics and, and um, the environment that instilled extreme drive in myself to do something for, for the oceans and the planet, wow. right? That's fantastic. And so how did that then bring you to where you are today? I mean, tell us about what, what you're doing today and tell us essentially what that journey looked like and how you've sort of really pushed those boundaries. Yeah, so if we go fast forward uh, 40, 45 years, um, now I'm um, building a, a group of companies. My project name is Blue Beat. And these companies are all focused on, uh, on the oceans. I am a person after 40, 50 years of uh, indirect and direct experience with, with NGOs, charities, and governments that strongly believes in high degree of self-regulation. And I believe in the power of businesses. Um, so I'm building companies that are making money and doing good all the time. That's my philosophy. The, the challenge that I see with, with governments, NGOs, and charities is that they work with negative cash flows. 
they normally need tax money or donations from the public to do good. And what you see in times of crisis, like today with COVID, is that as soon as there are cash flow constraints in NGOs and charities or with the government, the focus shifts from doing good for the environment, education, medical, etc., etc., to focusing on high-tech infrastructure, uh, defense systems, etc., etc. So what we see is that the oceans and the environment, the planet, are continuously suffering by a severe lack of mankind acting on what we need to act on because of political and financial constraints. I have been um, running um, businesses for multinationals for about 25 years, uh, mainly in emerging countries in the United States, in South America, Brazil, Argentina, China, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, Singapore. I did that as a payroll uh, executive, board member, CEO. So I learned how to build organizations how to work with the financial side of things, how to build products and services and make them profitable and successful. And I always did that, uh, as I say for fun, as a mercenary, as a paid uh, soldier, doing it for big corporations. Um, I'm very competitive. I like to work with people. I don't like to win alone. I like to win with teams. And I did that in the blue chip uh, area for, for about 25 years. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering and business administration. And uh, I built factories and products and, and services all over the, the, the planet. Um, what I started to find out after 20, 25 years is that um, many of my older colleagues um, um, would get burnouts when they retired. They would turn 65. They would get a golden handshake and an envelope and a box of cigars. And then they would find out that they work like dogs and horses for 45 years on the payroll of big multinationals, flying business class and having this false feeling of a status. And then when they retired, they found out that they abandoned their spouses, they abandoned their children, their grandchildren, they didn't spend enough time with their family members, they didn't develop passion and hobbies. And quite a few of my older uh, peers, they would literally get a heart attack in their backyard uh, totally alone and, and pass away. So when I was in my late 30s, um, I had a chat with my, um, my wife and kids and I said, listen, um, I don't want to turn up like one of those what I call German shepherds, uh, like a very loyal, hardworking dog, turn 65 and then look back and talk about all the uh, what ifs and uh, I should have, etc., etc." So I uh, told them what I wanted to do. I um, left my uh, second multinational and I started my own engineering oil and gas uh, technology company with two Norwegian friends or partners. And we started to build assets for the uh, oil and gas exploration. Um, at the same time, what I jokingly said at that time is that many middle-aged guys, when they are in their early 40s and get their first midlife crisis, they want to buy their first supercar, like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. <laughs> um, and I said to my wife and kids, I don't need a Lamborghini or Ferrari. I want to have my own scuba diving company. As I mentioned, in my early days, um, I was in love with the oceans and Jacques Cousteau. So when I moved from Holland to the United States, uh, I had one month of in-between jobs. And my wife and I got certified uh, in the mid-90s in, uh, in Yucatan, in Mexico, uh, where we became scuba divers. So um, we did hundreds uh, of dives together all over the planet. And then um, when I resigned from the multinationals, I started doing more dives because they put me on a seven-month garden leave. And I became um, a staff instructor um, with Paddy for scuba diving. 
So I started my own scuba diving company with my Norwegian partners as a hobby project uh, within the oil and gas business. And then I think that really started to reveal um, what I believe in today, which I call uh, B2P cubed, which is business to people, purpose and passion disrupting B2B and B2C. I believe that all business people, employees, business owners, managers um, need to design strategies with a vision that is strongly supported and driven by a purpose. Whatever you do, whether it is Cloud FM, your business, or my business, or any other business on the planet, um, I think all businesses, to become more successful and more profitable, need to design a purpose in their vision, right? So um, that's what, um, what I discussed with my wife and kids. I said, I'm going to turn Orca Scuba, as it was called at that time, from a little hobby project into a scalable um, ocean literacy multinational. Um, so that started eight years ago, headquartered in Singapore. Um, and today what we do is um, we have a for-profit company headquartered in Singapore that is built around uh, three pillars. Um, we deliver and design um, uh, school camps for private schools. Um, that are either uh, teaching the IGCSE, the British system, the International General S uh, Certificate for Secondary Education, or that are driving the IB, the International Baccalaureate, which is the only globally accepted secondary school education that is accepted by all universities on the planet. Um, we deliver uh, irresistible propositions to these international schools, meaning that we organize um, adventure school camps around the oceans, in the oceans, on the oceans, and in the jungle in Southeast Asia. And um, during these school camps, we integrate the theoretical classroom curriculum with real-life action around the oceans and the jungle. So children can uh, link um, the academic knowledge that they get given by the schools with what is actually happening in the environment, uh, which brings me to uh, to my, my, my purpose on this planet, um, to... Uh, help the oceans to get healthy again. And once we have healthy oceans again, the oceans will help mankind also to get back in shape again, right? The story so far is fantastic. When you think about the opportunity those kids have in that education and, and God, I dream of um, me being in a position where my parents could have sent me on one of those trips because um, not only is it good fun and outside, but that, you know, the education element, I mean, we all, we, you said earlier, you know, you thought adults were intelligent. Um, when you think about some of the things we don't understand, even, you know, at our ripe old age, you think, you sit and think, well, you know, how on earth do we not understand this stuff? And that's why when I met you a few months ago and you started talking to me about your, your dream, your passion, your purpose, uh, and, and then getting under skin of it, suddenly it becomes an incredibly fascinating subject. Um, and especially when, you know, I learned from you about the importance of the ocean, you know, we, the average, the average Joe doesn't really understand the role that the ocean plays in humanity, do they? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is my whole, um, that is my whole, uh, drive. Um, I, um, uh, most business people and people that have a panache or a drive experience, they very easily end up in huge debates and arguments with other adults, um, ultimately without any purpose. It's just for the sake of being right or being wrong, being a Democrat or Republican, left or right, or whatever you want to call it, right? And um, so I normally don't talk about right and wrong, left and right and politics. Um, I have a very strong opinion about what's happening on this uh, planet. 
And I think with the extreme drive of social media and digital advertising and digital news gathering, um, we ended up in a very unfortunate situation where in 1976, I got nightmares because of a black and white advertisement of a Canadian guy clubbing a seal puppy, but that was a static black and white picture with a very low resolution. But that already gave me nightmares, right? Now, if I look at my own kids, uh, they are 20 and 18 at the moment, they get 1 million impressions per day in full color and high resolution, and everything blurs together, uh, movies, documentaries. And so one of my, my, my phrases to wake up people is that when you are at home watching television, you can switch channels between History Channel, Animal Planet, and Discovery Channel. And if you don't like what you see on History Channel, you, you flip back with your remote control to Animal Planet. Now, what's happening in real life today, where not enough people are, are taken care of, is that our Animal Planet is turning into a History Channel. And we cannot switch back channels, right? And if you don't force children to go outside and disconnect from their social media and their smartphones and stuff like that. And you don't show them the real world, the real Robin Hood forest, the real jungle, the real ocean. You don't take them scuba diving to have a look underwater with their own eyes. You know, they just watch stuff on television and they don't realize what's disappearing and what we are destroying, right? Yeah. Well, it's a virtual world, isn't it? It ends up becoming a virtual world to them. It's not a real world. Yeah, world. yeah. And, and so I am yeah. totally, um, without going into detail again, because we can have days of conversations about this, but <laughs> I'm totally opposed to, let's say, the metaverse or the meta world or the Zuckerberg worlds, um, because people, they completely lose the connection with reality. With reality, yeah. So what I say to little kids at British schools when I do my keynote speech, I tell them we only need four things on this planet, whether you are Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or whoever you are, we need a safe place to live, we need safe food, clean air, and we need clean water to drink. Mm. And those are four real things that we cannot find on Mars eh, with Elon Musk uh, mm. or um, that we can't find in the metaverse, right? Whatever we do the next 500 years, um, mm. we need food sources, water, oxygen, and a safe place to live. Mm. And we should not forget about that. And that, that is mm. really what drives me, right? Fantastic. Just moving on to your current huge project. Tell us about that. Basically, um, the challenge that I have, Jeff, and uh, when I read your book, I found a lot of comfort. Uh, it's always good uh, to know that you are not the only crazy guy on the planet, right? So there's quite a few of us. Um, so my, my big um, vision is to build this um, um, organization that um, spins off um, ocean um, companies around ocean health, ocean technology, ocean literacy, et cetera, et cetera. So Orca Nation is already up and standing for about eight years. That's an ocean literacy company. We are now bringing her to uh, Europe and to the United Kingdom. And then my second uh, baby is a technology company called Blue Oasis Technology Limitada. And the nickname is uh, B-O-T-L or Bottle, uh, spelled wrongly. Bottle is a, a technology company focusing on ocean health. Um, what many people are not aware of is that 70% um, of the surface of the planet is covered with oceans. 70% of all the oxygen that we breathe and need on this planet is generated by ecosystems from within the oceans. 
50% of all the natural coral reefs that we used to have on the planet have been destroyed in the last century. And if we don't do something about it in the next 20 years, another 40% of all these reefs will disappear. Now, the coral reefs are generating 25% of all life and biomass in the oceans. So I believe that we need to shift our focus and we have to make sure that we start protecting underwater uh, uh, biodiversity, ecosystems, coral reefs, kelp plantations, seagrass meadows, etc., etc. So Blue Oasis Technology uh, is a company that is going to build massive man-made engineered reefs, uh, rocky reefs for the Atlantic and um, uh, coral reef hosts for uh, Southeast Asia. And these reef installations are made out of a eco-geopolymer concrete, a man-made uh, eco-friendly concrete that we use to build reef modules. One reef module for your imagination um, has a size of five by five by five meters or roughly uh, five by five by five uh, yards. Um, and it has a volume of about 125 cubic meters. And these reef modules are stackable and placeable along the three axes, X, Y, and Z, underwater. And they will start attracting life, uh, flora and fauna, bringing life back uh, uh, to the uh, subaquatic ecosystems. Uh, right now, we are working on a project in Comporta, uh, south of Lisbon, the city, in an area of 54 square kilometers. So it's a huge area, um, which at the moment looks like an underwater desert. When I speak to fishermen, uh, and marine biologists and people that are native from that region. I know that 50, 60 years ago, it was full of kelp, of seagrass meadows, and an abundance of, of ocean and aquatic life, uh, you know, all types of fish, etc., etc. So I want to try to bring this back together with the local community, local society, by deploying these reef installations. Now, the big trick is that I believe for anything to be sustainable, it has to make profit. Um, if something doesn't make profit, it is not sustainable. Governments will not continue to pump money into these kind of endeavors if they don't generate a yield, right? So what we are developing is an ecosystem of business opportunities. At the moment, there's a very strong tendency from big institutional investors to divest out of fossil fuel. The companies like BP and Shell are suffering from this because pension funds and institutional investors are now publicly stating that they will divest billions, if not trillions of dollars out of the oil and gas industry. And they are looking for new investment targets. So what we have developed, and we are not ready yet, I have to be, um, I'm always very enthusiastic, but um, step by step, what we are developing is an ecosystem where our reefs will get certified and qualified, for example, by the EU, by the United Nations, etc., etc., as uh, frontier pioneer blue technologies that are sequestering carbon underwater. The biggest challenge for mankind on this planet is climate change together with bio uh, and marine habitat destruction and social economic inequality. And I want to address these three threats to the planet and to mankind by building these huge reef installations. The reefs will give back life to the oceans. The ecosystems that come back will absorb carbon underwater, which is 10 to 12 times more potent than carbon sequestration in a natural manner on land. Um, so we will create carbon trading opportunities with assets that we are putting underwater. So when people invest in our assets, they uh, become 
co-owners of a reef concession that we have typically for 30 years with the government. And then they will benefit uh, and get an ROI on the trading yield that we generate with the carbon trading, right? So by doing that, I will create a uh, perpetuum mobile in Latin, right? It's like a self-moving um, um, uh, system that doesn't need external energy, where the funding that is generated and the yield that is generated by these reef installations can be used to expand uh, and invest in more of these uh, projects. Um, that, that's, that's what I'm building. I hope that's clear. And then combined with these reef installations, we have developed a technology called Blue Box, which is a subaquatic data recording technology where we are talking to very big parties like IBM and Microsoft and Accenture, for example, to um, uh, collect subaquatic data. I call it big ocean data, which we stream live into the cloud and mix and match it then, uh, it's called synoptic remote sensing with satellite data. So we can advance our learnings and knowledge on the oceans. This data can be given to R&D centers, universities and governments for the betterment of the oceans, planet and ourselves. But I can also, of course, trade that data for commercial purposes on transportation, shipping, fishing, tourism, etc., etc. That's, in a nutshell, what that company is going to do. And listen, I mean, again, when you explained this to me a few months ago, the opportunity is massive. And, and just for clarity, when we talk about profit, um, the first thing people will think about, especially non-entrepreneurs, will say, God, it's all about profit. What people don't realise is that the profit is what creates the sustainability. If, if you don't make profit, then you know the, the, the lake runs dry, right? The profit is there for reinvestment, sustainability, growth, knowledge, learning. Um, it's not for lining somebody's pockets. Now, I think the reality of all of that is that when you look at the things we've all been watching over the years with um, you know climate change um, and and the Green Party and all the things we're going on with the G20 um, and suddenly this you know and Greta Thunberg and all the pushes that you have the bit that nobody's spoken about is the impact of the oceans and I think that's the piece that's missing for me that as you say seventy percent of the world is covered in ocean and yet by your own statement that says you know just in on the coast of of Lisbon that you've got this incredible area that's a desert that used to be thriving. Now, that's, that's got to tell us that we're killing nature, right? So um, the idea of you building a man-made reef that will attract life to re to stimulate carbon capture, not to mention um, just the, the all the other benefits of oxygen generation and all those other things. I mean, it's a massive, massive project that um, that when I spoke to you, I'm, I'm mesmerised by the fact that most people go, oh my God, how do I face a project that size? Yet you seem to take it in your stride, which is which is unbelievable. It's, it's fascinating, it's encouraging, it's heartwarming. And um, and I can't wait to be one of the first visitors to your man-made reef. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that we, um, we are now finalizing the proof of concept permits. Um, so I hope that we actually uh, start deploying the first modules um, uh, in the second half of 2022. Um, and then um, to answer that uh, that that doubt uh, or that cloud that you have about size and everything, um, I just compartmentalize um, these uh, challenges um, uh, and I zoom out from the from the details to look at the big picture to get a feeling: is this going to work or not? I have 10 million questions, Jeff, um, about uh, the implementation and execution and everything. But I, you know, those will sort themselves out over time. Uh, the big picture is very clear to me. 
the feedback that we are getting from governments and from big multinational corporations is very heartwarming. So I think, you know, we will get there. Of course, we will make 10,000 mistakes uh, in the next 24 months. <laughs> but that's part of uh, falling and then standing up again and learning to walk, right? So Well, exactly. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's not 10,000 mistakes. It's 10,000 opportunities to learn, right? Learning moments, so, yeah. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think one of the things that, again, is probably emphasized by my question when I say, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely exasperated by the size of the project, but that just shows the power of purpose, right? Because when you, when you've got such a, when you've got such a passion and purpose, size plays no role. It doesn't matter about the size because it's your purpose. It's your passion. And therefore yeah. you, you will just be relentless in that drive. And that's what creates successful outcomes and, t- you know, never taking no for an answer. So that's fantastic. So listen, Jerome. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions now as we come to the end. I want to ask you, and please you know, take a few seconds to think about it if you want to, unless you know the answer straight off, but what would you say you are most grateful for at this moment in time? Um, on the scale of things in the big picture, it's really um, uh, my, my wife, my two healthy kids, and then my parents who are still healthy and alive. Uh, giving me uh, all their uh, support and love. Um, uh, what I'm doing at the moment is pretty um, uh, radical and um, uh, it's not necessarily financially interesting short term, uh, putting a lot of pressure on, on my little family and myself um, compared to the luxurious lifestyle that I had as an executive in, in big multinationals. But it's the endless, uh, uh, let's say, love uh, from, from my little family, yeah. Including the including the dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And my final question is: If you could only give one message um, to the public, what single message would you like to give the audience based upon your experiences of life so far? Um, I um, I have learned. Uh, through many, many, many uh, life events that everything, anything can be solved and sorted. As long as I'm healthy, as long as I have, jokingly, water and bread, um, any challenge that comes on our path uh, will and can be sorted out. What you have to learn, I believe, in life is uh, to be able to zoom out from um, the daily uh, challenges that you face sometimes and just focus on, on yourself and, and your health and, you know, inhale fresh air and just look at your challenges from high above if you can visualize that. And then you can just right-size problems and situations and challenges that come your way, right? Everything will get sorted. Everything has a solution. Um, that's why I'm rarely getting stressed uh, anymore because I know that it's just another hiccup <laughs> you know I just uh, try to zoom out from the challenge how big it is and just right size the problem and then of course carry on you know and that's a that's a great message that's about positive mindset right that's that, yeah. that's all it is it's not about being a, a a radical optimist it's just about a positive mindset and um and the power to achieve whatever you set out to achieve if it's truly your passion. So anyway, listen, Jerome, thank you so much for your story. It's fascinating. Um, I'm sure 
on the back of this podcast, people are going to be very interested in learning a, a lot more. Um, and uh, and also, I'd just like you to quickly plug because I've I've read them. I think they're great. Can you just plug? Um, you've written a couple of books on on the oceans as well, haven't you? Uh, honestly, I, I wrote one book. Uh, I'm writing a second book, but it's still work in progress. Um, I, I wrote a book called uh, Together We Can Turn Tides, um, a manifesto to save the oceans, planet, and ourselves. Um, it's a book about uh, a little bit about my upbringing um, and my, my philosophy in life, but mostly about the oceans and all the challenges that the oceans are facing. But then the book ends on a positive, optimistic note, giving people many, many coat hangers, as I call them, things that you can do at home or with your family or in your company to help the oceans ahead and uh, make, uh, you know, make them healthy again, get them in a better shape, right? So, But more importantly, it's a great piece of education for the layman. That's, that was what was so fascinating. It brings it to life. And I think um, you know, some of us are oblivious to it. And I think it's a, a great... Uh, a great way of actually um, looking at the reality of the world through the eyes of someone that actually cares about the outcome. So, Jerome, thank you very, very much for your time today. Um, we obviously will meet up again in a couple of weeks anyway. It's been great yeah. talking to you. Thanks for bringing your story. And, um, and I'll see you soon. Jeff, thanks for your time and uh, keep up the good work. <laughs>